0: Welcome to the Australian Hiker Podcast, Australia's longest running hiking podcast, downloaded over half a million times in over 145 countries and providing you with an Australian perspective on all things hiking. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage.
1: In today's episode, episode 184, we discuss huts and hiking in Australia. Before we get into today's episode, if you'd like to help support Australian Hiker and this podcast, there are a couple of ways that you can help us out. Firstly, subscribe on your podcast host of choice so that each episode is available as soon as it's published, and if you have the opportunity, leave us a five-star review. Another way to support us, if you like what we do, is go to the Australian Hiker website at www.australianhiker.com.au and click on the supporters page and buy us a coffee. You can do a one-off donation or become a monthly supporter. All donations are greatly appreciated and help us to continue producing this podcast and blog. Now let's get on to today's episode. Australia's Alpine National Parks consists of a series of eight national parks that run from the outskirts of Canberra in the north, through new south wales down into victoria not far from the outskirts of melbourne in the south now most of these parks are physically connected and form a continuous pathway uh, that the australian alps walking track runs through highlighting the best of what these parks have on offer if you've spent much time wandering this alpine region then you will have come across one or more of the approximately 200 huts that dot the landscape And while the Australian Alps is home to this high concentration of huts, other states and territories also boast a range of these relics from the past. In addition to the older huts, there are now a range of newer, often ultra-modern versions cropping up on some of our best-known outdoor recreation areas. In this podcast episode, we look at the reason these huts came into existence, the function that they now serve, and importantly, the etiquette involved in using them. We hope you enjoy. Now, when we're talking about huts, I suppose, the thing we need to think about here is these really are, for the want of a better term, small buildings. So if you think of a garden shed, anywhere. I say, sm- very small buildings. <laughs> very small buildings. Anywhere up to uh, a large homestead. But they've got a roof, they've got four walls, they've usually got windows, uh, and they've got doors on them. So basically, once you close yourself up for the night, you're inside an enclosed structure. This is opposed to shelters, which can often be two- or three-sided and aren't fully sealed in. And usually, you'll come across the huts in areas that have extreme weather conditions. Not always, but in most cases, that's the, the reason for the huts being there. Now the oldest of the huts in the Australian Alpine region date back to the 1860s and there are a large number of them that were built by grazers and miners initially to provide accommodation and shelter for those hardy souls that worked the land or sought the wealth underneath it. From this rural background, the patent continued into the 1900s with huts like Schlink Hut in Kosciuszko National Park being built for the Snowy Mountain Scheme in 1961. Now while many of these older huts fell into a state of disrepair, or are now ruins, there are a large number that are still in use today, uh, with many being maintained by active groups of volunteers who painstakingly rebuild and maintain, often with older tools, to maintain the authenticity of these structures. These days, there are probably two main reasons that huts are constructed. The first is as an emergency shelter, uh, and these often tend to be located in in areas that have heavy recreational use and climates that are severe. That means that uh, rather than having people getting lost and being injured or even dying in, in extreme conditions, they've got somewhere to shelter in, providing they know where they are. The second reason probably is more of a a commercial one, and that's a tourism reason, with a lot of our more modern huts being generated, uh, particularly in Tasmania more so than other states, uh, as part of the government's uh, push towards generating tourism, uh, and also by private companies for upmarket glamping options. Now the materials used to construct these huts vary greatly with no two huts being exactly the same and that applies even to the modern built huts there's always tends to be some sort of unique feature or difference that each of them has Now the older huts typically consist of wood stone and tin in any number of combinations where huts that are are often newer tend to be made of high tech materials architecturally designed and occasionally putting the average home to shame.
0: (laughs) We've seen a few of those.
1: (laughs) Now, the inside of these huts also vary from being very basic uh, and the the occasional home to possum or other wildlife, uh, often retaining dirt flooring, while the newer glamping-style huts come fully decorated, complete with comfy mattresses, hot showers, full kitchens, uh, to cater for those that want the outdoor experience without necessarily roughing it.
0: That's that's the glamping option. That yeah.
1: is, yeah. And over the years, I've seen just about every style and combination and construction of uh, and level of luxury of these huts. Uh, and as I said, some of these would put the average home to shame.
0: Now, we're now going to talk about hut culture. Many overseas countries have an active hut culture, uh, with many huts coming complete with wardens, meals, uh, snacks for sale and even alcohol. Uh, much of the year. Uh, We've certainly experienced that as we travelled through Europe um, and they allow people to travel from hut to hut without any camping gear at all uh, or to stay where the action is and walk out the door to take part in the activity of their choice. It's not so much the case, uh, if at all, in Australia. As a generalisation, many Australian huts often are uh, solitary objects sitting within the landscape, remote from civilisation, and with the exception of the avid outdoor enthusiast, seeing only a relatively small number of visitors each year. Having said that, some huts will see thousands of people a year visit them, but they tend to be in the minority. There is a large range of hut types spread through the country, and while there is a large concentration in the Australian Alpine area, every state and territory has them at least to some degree.
1: Now, Jill mentioned that yeah, you know, the the variability in in access that people have to huts, and if you think about the summit walk to Mount Kosciuszko, the the estimate is that approximately hundred thousand people a year summit Mount Kosciuszko. Uh, And pretty much that's all by walking. Uh, And in most cases, but not all, you come across Siemens Hut as being an option to get to the summit of Mount Kosciuszko. This hut is probably the most visited hut in all of Australia just by default because many people who will walk
0: well, it's on the way, isn't it's, it? It's on the way.
1: So, <laughs> yeah, you know, you, it basically it's it's about three or four meters off the side of the actual trail. So, um, yeah, you, know, you it, it it's it, you can't help but really stop in and have a look around it. And they are in the process of building a toilet facility there. Um, I don't know whether that's been completed or not, or not yet. It was due to be, but I think there's been delay. Um, and and this this hut again is designed more for an emergency hut. But what it does do is it allows people to stop in and see what's there. The other extreme here, as Jill mentioned, was huts that rarely get any visitation at all. Uh, And these ones, particularly if you're looking at some of the huts on the Australian Alps walking track, unless you are going into remote areas... Uh, you are unlikely to come across a number of these sort of huts.
0: Well, you've got to walk a long way to find one. Yeah, in some yeah. cases.
1: So there are some. There are a lot, awful lot of huts that don't get much visitation at all. The first type of hut we're going to look at is the historic huts, and these really form the bulk of the older huts in Australia, uh, and have been preserved and restored as historic landmarks. These huts are typically the older ones that started life as rural infrastructure or homesteads, and in many cases, there are often just ruins uh, with chimneys or foundations remaining and not much else. These old historic huts showcase our history and provide an insight into who we used to be. Uh, These days, they're regularly maintained by volunteer associations, running uh, an active maintenance schedule to keep them in good condition. And as a generalisation, these huts tend to be for short day use, somewhere to sit and have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea just out of the wind, uh, and for emergency use only.
0: The thing I like about visiting these huts is uh, reading about the stories. There's usually uh, some information available about uh, how they came to be and, uh, you know, who used them and what happened to those people. And I think, you know, that's the really sort of rich thing about these historic huts and the importance of them
1: the next type of hut is what we class as trail huts and this is this is by no means an official name it's just something we've classed them as <laughs> in
0: in the absence of any other great name They're,
1: yeah now most trails in warmer climates tend to have shelters rather than huts, as we mentioned. Uh, So in this case here, these huts are designed to provide warmth and weatherproofing to get you out of the extreme conditions. As we mentioned, Tasmania is big on these huts uh, that have been constructed as part of the trail system. So trails like the Three Capes Walk, which is relatively new, uh, the Overland Track and others. Uh, and in most cases, the huts on the overland track will vary in age. Some of them are actually relatively new. Some of them are, are older. Um, they're relatively basic in most cases. They have a very basic kitchen. Uh, they'll have a an outdoor toilet. Uh, they'll have uh, a, a some sort of seating to sit and have your meal. Uh, and then they'll have uh, sleeping bunks for for want of a better term and in a lot of cases these bunks might be just uh, large flat pieces of timber where you might sleep eight people or ten people on a level uh, and in fact the, um, the, the, the uh, one of the photos we use in the written version of this podcast is Waterfall Hut which sleeps roughly about 24 people now that's going to be a bit cramped. It's going to be a bit noisy, um, but you know if the conditions are really that bad, you can you can get that many people in there.
0: So another type of hut is uh, the huts where you pay and stay. Occasionally you come across huts or old uh, farmsteads uh, that are actually uh, a kind of like an Airbnb, like Nil Desperandum, located in the Tidbinbilla Nature Reserve on the outskirts of Canberra. Um, this hut can be booked by an individual or group for a one-off cost, and is the only opportunity to stay in this reserve. Um, but huts like this are a rarity.
1: Now, Jill did say this is like Air- AirBnB. In fact, this is actually on AirBnB. <laughs> um, this is. Uh, I thought that was a joke. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's it's. I mean, I think AirBnB is, is the easy easy option for uh, when you've got the odd house to try and rent. And in this case here, uh, this is a, a very good option to do that. This was an old homestead in this area. Um, and it, as as Jill mentioned, it's the only option you have to stay within the Tidbin Bella Nature Reserve. Now they are pretty specific here. They say no parties. Um, but and, but you know, if you want to go out with a group, you know, even by yourself or with a group of friends, you know, go out, have a fire, um, have, a, have a dinner. Uh, in an area that is pretty unique, because in all honesty, you know this is something that not many people do. Yeah. Um, so it's an opportunity to stay in the reserve uh, and actually have a a good opportunity and a good experience that you wouldn't normally get. The ACT has another hut called the Ready Cut Cottage, which apparently uh, is not available just at the moment, but it's the same sort of situation. It was designed as an artist retreat where you could actually hire the hut for a a night or a two. Uh, But as I said, at the moment, it's not available. And I think this is partly due to the fires that went through in 2019-20. From here, we move on to what we class as modern luxury. Uh, And these really are the glamping style huts. Uh, and they're in a lot of cases, as we said, either set up by state and territory governments or they're constructed by commercial operations uh, within either state and territory parks or on private walks themselves. So if we think again of the overland track in Tasmania, uh, you have the option to do this. You pay your track fee, uh, you hike uh, you either sleep in the public available huts or you stay in tents on the tent platforms or you stay on tents on the grassy areas um, but you're staying with other people and the huts are relatively basic. Whereas you've got the option to do the luxury uh, huts and there are five of those uh, and these huts come with mattresses, warm showers, uh, cooked meals, uh, bottles of wine and you're only carrying a day pack you're not carrying um, full-on set of gear like tent and everything else uh, between from from heart to heart
0: and you're on a guided tour and you're with a group of people um,
1: and for all of that luxury you absolutely pay for it so I mean it's I must admit I mean you know this is an option through here that a lot of people don't like uh, because you know is it really is it really hiking if if you you stay in a in a, in a cabin a, and have a cooked meal at the end of the day, you get a shower and a bottle of wine. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> oh, but, you know, I don't know. I think I could handle that.
1: <laughs> but I think it's an opportunity. Not everyone has the capacity to have it, it to carry a pack, and not everyone wants the experience of roughing it when you're going camping. And I think anything that gets people out in the bush, even if it's a luxury accommodation each night, uh, is a valid option.
0: I think the point is that the more people who can experience uh, what nature has to offer uh, that, that we have in Australia, uh, the more people who will be willing to um, conserve it and protect it.
1: Now, Tasmania tend to be the the king of this style of camping. Uh, they have a lot of wilderness areas. They have a lot of uh, very uh, amazing camping areas and they, the state government in particular has uh, embraced this style of camping and allowed a lot of private companies to build these uh, private-style huts within uh, national parks and World Heritage areas. Um, and it has caused a lot of controversy. Um, but again, it's the sort of thing that uh, there isn't just one style of camping, there isn't just one right way of doing things. And I think, while it's maintained... I think it's a good way of doing it. From a state government perspective, one of their newest trails is the Three Capes track, which we mentioned earlier. Uh, That track, including the huts that belong to it, cost around about $25 million to build. Uh, As a result, the, uh, the adult fees to do this track are $495 per person at the time of this podcast um and they you know it's really they're needing to recoup the amount of money they've put back mm. into it you know, maybe not all of it but at least to be able to maintain it and to generate income uh, for the state and for the park service
0: and they're pretty impressive um architecturally and uh, in terms of quality so you know I think um you uh, you get what you pay for I guess I suppose
1: and yeah it's not an overly long walk and it's a good opportunity for people to that aren't quite ready to take the next step to get out in a tent and go remote uh, to go on a, um, a, you know, it's almost impossible to get lost. You follow the boardwalk in most cases. Um, and, you know, you it, it really is a, a an easy introduction into hiking and camping, uh, albeit luxury camping or glamping.
0: Well, you know, it's kind of semi, isn't it? Because you've still got to take your own food. You're just not taking your own tent. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's sort of a, of a midway
1: point, isn't it? It is. Now, from here, we go on to hut etiquette, and there's a couple of areas we'll look at here. The first one is probably the first thing I'd probably say here is more a generic comment. With the exception of huts which are designated for sleeping as part of the trail, so as we mentioned, the Three Capes Track, the Overland Track, many of the huts that we come across on trails in Australia are more of the older historic huts. Uh, and the not-so-old historic huts that are designed for emergency use only. Now, if you go and look onto the National Park websites, in most cases, where there are huts on trail, they will very clearly state that these huts are for emergency use only or for day use, not for staying in as a planned event. Um, Having said that, every time that we've camped nearby huts, there has always been at least one or more people who have slept inside the huts and they've done this as a planned activity. Uh, Now, I'll own up here and saying I have slept inside a hut once uh, and I've slept by the huts uh, twice and and typically they'll ask you sleep a couple of hundred metres away just so you limit the impact on the huts themselves. And that is the reason for that. I mean, the more people that sleep inside, the more wear and tear, the more damage that happens to these huts, and the more it costs to maintain, and the more it degrades a resource or degrades a historic artifact. Now, in relation to sleeping outside, uh, my reasons were, were twofold. In, in, in the first instance, I had a very big lightning and thunderstorm. Uh, I put my tent up against the hut, um, so it wasn't the biggest thing around uh, and wasn't a, a lightning rod and I was getting very, very close to going inside because of the severity of the storm. Uh, but, yeah, that's a, a real rarity. Normally I would have camped further away from the hut that I did.
0: Well, it's kind of an emergency.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, the second second time I went through and did this, and this is when Jill and I, last Christmas, we were camping at Schlink Hut in Kosciuszko National Park and we and everybody else in most cases that was sleeping outside had their tents very close to the hut itself. Now, in this instance, it was more a function of how the hut was set up, that to sleep away from the hut would have put you into sleeping into natural bushland, and that would have been causing damage to the bush rather than sleeping on the grassy areas outside of the hut hut itself. So this was an instance where sleeping close to the hut uh, really was the only option uh, short of damaging the environment.
0: Yeah, it was a really interesting one, wasn't it? And, and you know, I think that's probably, um, I, for that particular hut, I can't imagine that people would be um, tenting in numbers any distant away. I mean, there were, you know, one or two tents along the way that we saw that uh, people had uh, erected, but uh, really in and around the hut was... Pretty much the place to be.
1: So the whole concept of can you sleep in a hut or not? um, If it's in a national park or a state reserve, wherever you may be, and you know that you're going to be near there or visiting there, go onto the website beforehand. Ring the park service if they don't state it, and find out whether you can actually do it. And uh, I do remember uh, over the last year, I visited one of the huts in our local area. And I was talking to uh, one of the rangers and said, "What is the situation? You know, what's you know, can you camp in there?" And again, very clearly stated that this was emergency use only. They would prefer people would camp around about two hundred meters away, um, even though there is a toilet nearby. So it's a bit of a walk at night time, but you know, it's designed uh, as an emergency uh, hut only, not as something you plan on doing. So the recommendation is when you're going into these areas and doing these walks, particularly the longer walks, that you take a tent with you. Uh, and if you deem there's a, there is an emergency for whatever reason, then you can sleep inside, but don't plan on doing that. I have actually seen websites that do promote the use of these huts for sleeping, but it's not recommended. And again, as I said, the park services request you don't do it. Now, from a general etiquette point of view, if you are staying in a hut or a shelter that is designated sleeping space for the trail you happen to be on, there's a few things that you need to go through and consider.
0: So this is the list of pet hates, I think. Is, is that right, Tim? It is. It is. <laughs> okay. So number one, number one, and uh, yes, this has happened to us, uh, don't move other people's gear, please. <laughs> It's a really weird thing. Um, So Tim and I were on the overland track. Uh, We had our gear uh, set up in a particular spot. It was neat. It was tidy. Uh, We went off for a a little walk and we came back and uh, our gear had been moved. It was in different spots and we had to gather it back up again. And I'm not quite sure why the person who moved it decided uh, to occupy the space that we were occupying because there were other spaces um, but it it
1: it it wasn't a good thing <laughs> i think it was because there was a group traveling together and they wanted to keep all the gear together but i think it's just from my perspective it's just a lack of courtesy know, if you want to move it talk to the person say look do you mind if, if if this this happens and in most cases people will oblige the next one is setting your gear up at the night at uh, before it gets dark. Um, typically, a lot of people tend to arrive at the hut um, you know, well before it's the middle of the night. They're, they're getting there before dinner time or late in the afternoon. Get there, work out where you're sleeping, set your sleeping area up. There is nothing worse than people you know, people going to bed, and, and we are, we tend to be early sleepers, so we'll often be in bed by 7, 7.30, and having someone in the same room coming in at nine o'clock with their headlight on, pulling all the gear out of their pack, setting up their sleeping area.
0: No, I think it I think it was the dropping of the water bottle five times in a row that did it for us. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> see, I said it was going to be a little bit of a, a pet hate list. So the other one uh, I think is an interesting one, which is about um, not just leaving the shelter clean, but leaving it cleaner than you found it. Um, there's There's always a bit of extra dust that you can sweep up or something like that, but you know um, it's just a nice thing
1: to do for the people who are going to come next. Keep noise to a minimum, um, and again, this is where the concept of hiker midnight comes in. If I'm camping by myself, when once it gets dark, pretty much I go to sleep. so if i when I do a lot of hiking in the middle of winter, it's not unusual for me to be in my sleeping bag trying to go to sleep at 6.30, 7 o'clock at night. Now that means I wake up really early in the morning, uh, so I tend to repay people that have been keeping me awake late <laughs> into the night as I get up and go out early the next We're day. We're not that grumpy, really. We're not. <laughs> no. I must admit, I try to try to keep things fairly quiet in the mornings, but sometimes it's just like you know, if you want to have a chat and a talk, go outside and do it. Um, be be courteous of other people there uh, who are trying to get asleep. sleep.
0: So this one is for you, Tim. If you're a snorer, sleep outside. Um, if local laws and conditions allow, in your own tent. Now, are you talking about the tent being allowed or are you talking about the noise that the snor-
1: snorer makes being allowed? And, and as Jill said, I am a snorer, so I, I, I will quite freely own up to that. Uh, and I st- it's a bit hard to hide from that it's one It's a bit hard to hide from that one, and particularly when I'm tired, so I've had a big day, I know I'll snore. um I also find that if other people are snoring, it impacts on my sleep so if I, <laughs> if, I, if I if I've got the option um and it's not always the case, but if I've got the option, I'll go and sleep in my tent away from the accommodation because I'll get a better night's sleep, and the other people will get a better night's sleep as well
0: and The last bit of etiquette that we have um, is don't take up excessive space in the shelter kitchen and we've all uh, experienced the, uh, I don't know, it's kind of the spreading effect and the, uh, you know, wanting to take every piece of equipment out of our pack and put it on the only table and uh, meaning other people can't use the table And then you're having to ask, you know, can I have a little bit of a space to, you know, sit and eat my breakfast or, you know, do whatever I need to do. Just think about other people and keep your gear and keep your activity confined in a confined space.
1: From a point of view of just finishing off this episode, we... From an Australian perspective, we're never going to have the same relationship that other countries like Switzerland or New Zealand or the UK are going to have with their huts or as the UK people call them, their bodies.
0: I, uh, I don't mind that, I have to say.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you yeah, know, it's um, doing, doing hiking on things like the Te Araroa Trail in New Zealand where you can actually stay in, in designated huts. You just need to pay a fee to go through and do it. Um, From our perspective, our huts pretty much are emergency use only. Um, We have huts that we pay for occasionally, but usually that's part of the track fees. Um, And really they're there from an Australian perspective for an emergency use and to provide a bit of um, historic background on what our past was.
0: Unless it's a shelter, then, you know, you're quite... If it's a designated shelter, then you're able to, to sleep in it and use it.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, we, we we regularly walk past huts on a lot of the hikes we do because of the part of Australia we're in. Yeah, that's right. Um, and we, we have – I've just lost track of the number of huts that we've actually visited over the last five to ten years. Um, but it, it's – you know, if they're not shelters, they're historic relics – they're landmarks that if you know that you're getting to a certain point, you're on the right track, or you, you know that you expect to walk past a particular hut if you're going the right way. So they really do f- perform a, a number of functions. And I think what I've started to do is, if I know I'm going to be going past a hut, I do a bit of pre-reading to find out a bit of history about why the hut was there, when it was built, and, and where it had come from. So there was a hut that um uh, I did uh, came come across a couple of years ago called Witz's Hut which is um, part of the Australian Alps walking track uh, just near the Kiandra area and it was actually built in the 1960s but it was built from materials from a uh, what was remained of a, uh, a a homestead from the 1880s and they just used bits and pieces to, to generate this, this small hut, which has now been there for roughly around about 60-odd years. So, you know, that was interesting to see where it had come from and how it had come into existence. So I think next time you pass a hut by, try and look at it from a, a, a different perspective, and who knows, you may feel, find themselves falling in love with them with a way that you've never considered before. Okay, that's all for this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed. Bye for now. And bye from me.
0: We'll now talk about HUT culture. Many overseas countries have active HUT Hulk culture. Hulk cult.